Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. Hello, and welcome to the Investing for Life podcast. I'm Douglas Isles, and my goal is to help you, the listener, by encouraging my guests to unpack their successes using a framework model on Platinum's time-tested investment principles. We will explore temporary setbacks that shaped our guests. We will learn about the long-term steps they've taken to ensure they're on the right path, and we will hear how they stand out from the crowd. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine Hunt. Catherine is a lecturer in ethics and financial planning at Griffith University and has surfed all over the world. Catherine, you're in the fortunate position of being able to share your passion for learning with your students at Griffith, but I want to start at the beginning and learn more about your childhood. Byron Bay would have been much quieter back then than it is today, but but what stands out for you from growing up? Growing up in Byron Bay is very idyllic, obviously. But the interesting thing to me that stands out was how I had obviously the best teachers available because they all chose to go to Byron. No one, you know, gets posted there and then is all glum about it. Um, but on the other hand, they weren't really focused on education. They were really focused on just living our lives, trying things, especially surfing was a big priority. So when I wagged school in high school, for example, to go surfing, the next day they'd say, where were you yesterday in maths? Oh, yeah, the surf was good. Oh, yeah, okay, no problem. Get a note from your mum, will you? Yeah, sure. So it was very almost holistic, I suppose, in a way, even even through the school. So it was fantastic. Lots of surfing and, and great time. So maths was more about calculating angles of waves or frequencies or something like that, wavelengths? Yeah, we studied. Um, we literally studied weather patterns and, and swell and when waves break and, and all the, the things that you need to know. And I now teach to others and I learned it in high school, at school, like in a classroom. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it was it was really 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 incredible. That sounds sounds great. So so it was surfing, it was maths, traditional sports like netball and so on as well. Or? Um. Okay. So there's a thing. I have problems, obviously. So I can't stay inside a little square. And in netball, there's a rule that you have to stay in your own little square or your circle or whatever. So I can't I can't do that. But I I represented the school in all the other sports other than netball. Um because I yeah, I really loved sports. And that helped obviously because then if you're in a school where not not many other kids are interested in training and and being high performers, if that makes sense, then obviously I was like kind of a teacher's pet and so it, it carried across into the the studies as well, but from the sports. So education has obviously been a very important part of your life, being you're working in, in the field today. So what was it about education that, that stuck with you and became a became a passion, if you like, a lifelong passion? Ever since primary school, I had this teacher, Mr. Thurlow, who really encouraged us to get outside and understand what we were interested in and then find whatever the answers were to that. So I remember really distinctly literally walking outside with him and we were we were testing about the, the water cycle and we'd evaporated a, a tub of pink water, water with cut food colouring in it. And he was getting, we stared at the clouds for like 45 minutes trying to find the pink cloud. 
<laughs> because he was like, that was the lesson, right? Does, does the color evaporate or does only the pure water evaporate? And like that kind of lesson sticks with you forever. And I have a million examples of those throughout primary school and high school. So for me, it was always about, uh, learning and what do you want to learn? Let's find the answers to this. So then when it came to like, finishing school, my parents asked me, oh, what are you going to study at university? It wasn't, are you going to university? So there was always that expectation. So even though um, Byron Bay is a very privileged place to come from, we did understand very concretely that you need formal qualifications to really build a foundation for social mobility. So that was very clearly understood in my family. And so that's why I went to university because that's the way we did it. <laughs> and all I wanted to do was study something I was really interested in and that avoided maths because like I did advanced maths in high school and it was fine. I was fine at it, but it was not something I was really interested in. So I decided to do psychology as my first degree, not because I wanted to be a psychologist. I just wanted to learn about people and I wanted to maybe have some tools to be able to help people in my life and, and see where it took me. And turns out <laughs> a psychology degree is a quarter maths. <laughs> no one tells you that at high school. <laughs> You'd never have guessed. You would never guess. It's incredible. It's all statistics. I'd never have guessed that. No. Did you love people when you were when you were growing up and you, and you wanted to learn more about them, or did you find people difficult and it was it was trying to trying to fit in? Yeah, I found people difficult. I think to some extent, and it was more about trying to fit in. And also, I I'm really uh, I've always been focused on um, kind of. It's not really social justice, is it? Helping the poor, basically. So ever since I was a child, I'd see like a, a documentary on TV and I'd get super emotional about it. So I always knew that I wanted to to help in a, in a big scale. When I was a teenager, that was, oh, my gosh, I need to raise $500, fill a suitcase with rice and post it to Africa. They're having a famine. And that was literally my idea and my plan. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it wasn't a very good idea <laughs> at all. And how, how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> In fact, I, I did actually do yeah. that plan at some point, but it wasn't with rice. It was with baby clothes. And, you know. You pay so much in postage, it's incredible. And then six months later, the package ended up back on my doorstep because it couldn't have been delivered. So, you know, there's- <laughs> Return to sender. Return to sender, literally. So there's all of these kind of plans that I that I had that just went, yeah, no, that's not the way to achieve that. And it was similar when I was studying psychology, halfway through the degree, I realized they're really preparing us to be psychologists. This is not something I do not want to be a psychologist who focuses on knee pain or, you know, this is not my thing at all. So I knew even halfway through my degree that, okay, I need to, I'll definitely get out of this at some point and I'll, I'll probably do business. I always liked share trading and everything from, from late teenagehood. Um, so I just, that's why I decided to, to go into business after that. So the, the 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 psychology journey was was almost a bit of a setback in its in itself. You kind of wasn't what you expected. A few barriers were put up, and you had to change direction. It was a complete setback, really, really. The way it was phrased at the time, especially when when I talked to my family and my friends at the time, halfway through my degree, and I'm and I told them I'm going to finish the degree, and then I'm going to do a bachelor of commerce, and they were like, 
why have you just wasted a year and a half of your life? And why will you now waste another year and a half to finish this thing when you don't even want to be a psychologist? This just makes no sense. And then, of course, I was, I'd already done a degree and then I went into first year Bachelor of Commerce, which was, of course, perceived by my family and friends as this, yeah, my gosh, what are you doing? You know, you should be doing honours and moving forward rather than going backwards, especially not into business of all places. <laughs> and and was the transition worthwhile? <laughs> was it ever? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was it was actually incredible. It was incredible that I finished psychology. Everything I learned there has been amazing. And I didn't realize the value until I was about six months into my commerce degree and one of my professors, Professor Mark Brimble, very famous guy these days, he said, oh, yeah, there's this degree. It's called financial planning. You can major in it and there's jobs in it. And so, wow, really great. Fantastic. So I sent out some letters to some random places. Professional Investment Services was one of them. And they called me and said, meet this fellow. Um who then became my boss. And in the interview, he he said, oh, I'm just looking at your resume here. And since you've studied psychology, and I was very quick to say, no, 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 I'm, um, I'm, I'm studying commerce. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing financial planning. I'm doing really well in financial planning. And he was like, I don't care about that. Oh my gosh, anyone can study business. Have you met business students? Come on, you've got a psychology degree. You realize that financial planning is all about people and no one has a psychology degree. Can you start on Monday? And psychology is right at the heart of, of, I mean, as an investor, investment's all about psychology. Sometimes completely. By accident, you've ended up with the skills that most people wish they had. Indeed, completely by accident. So not really a setback after all. No, not at all. Not at all. And now in my research, so I'm, I'm in the business school, but I research and every single one of my research projects brings in psychology. And I do consulting as well, external consulting, and every single one of my projects there brings in psychology and everything I've learned in psychology. So it's, it's incredible how that huge setback was actually, in a way, the best thing that I ever did. So did you then enjoy financial planning coming at it from that, that psychology angle? Was it, um, did it make the, that role fulfilling? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Because it gave me a lot of openness about where people were coming from. So I never saw a client as a potential sack of, um, meat. Uh, to provide advice on investments for it was more that wow this is a this is a living being right in front of me what makes them tick what are they really here for because they're not here for what they say they're here for that's for sure so why are they here so unpicking their desires their goals their conflicts indeed and and giving them the space to talk about those things as well asking powerful questions and then just being quiet and seeing what what they come up with so what was the most interesting client experience that you you can remember from that from that time i had an experience where um one of the clients said to me okay well you've studied psychology read my mind i hadn't met them before this was like uh, (laughs) this was this was a very 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 fresh client and but i knew that the client worked in yeah it was a kind of an executive level um worker and was wearing a wedding ring so I said, uh, well, your, your marriage is in trouble. And he went, leaned back and went, what? <laughs> and I said, well, well, I mean, 
it is, right? And he was like, but how do you know? Mate, okay, you asked me to read your mind. You need to be ready for the answer because I just gave it to you. And and he's like, okay, fine. Let's just put that aside. I'm not going to talk about that. Fine. Neither do I want to talk about that either. But how do you know that? Okay. <laughs> you're a high-level executive and you're wearing a wedding ring. That's all I need to know. You are not spending enough time with your family. I can <laughs> guarantee it. That's, it's not actually very advanced psychology, really. It's just putting together the pieces and assuming that, okay, maybe this is a possibility. And in that case, it certainly was. So, so it's probability and statistics rather than um, psychology, perhaps. Perhaps. And being, being open to be aware of like looking at people and, and seeing, yeah, where are the, what are the things that, that tell, tell them what's happening, for example, tell you what's happening, for example, even their, their body language and all of those little cues that really form a huge basis of psychology. It's not only what people say, it's how they present themselves and, and all of their nonverbal cues, the body language, all of those components. So you got bored of being a financial planner at one point and decided to go and do something else. So what, what happened there? Because it sounds exciting from how you've described it. <laughs> It was it was very exciting, but it's also really interesting how when you grow up so so privileged in a country like this, how something like getting bored can even happen. So yeah, I was a financial planner in on the Gold Coast, living right on the beach. I could check the surf from my my bed. It was incredible, and um, it was a great life. But in a way, I got bored with with what was happening. So I wanted to do something that I'd always not always thought of as a, as a goal, but when, I don't know if you've ever had that question asked, asked of you, it's what would you do if you knew you would not fail? So whatever came into your head as the answer, that's a, that's a pretty good idea of what you should be doing. And what came into my mind when I was first asked that question was, oh, I'd do a PhD. And that was donkeys years ago. So I figured, okay, maybe now's the time to do a PhD. I'd done my honors as well. So in theory, I was eligible. And so I decided to go and do my PhD overseas. And I didn't want to do a normal PhD. I wanted to only do a very lucrative PhD because I was already on a normal human salary as a financial advisor. So I didn't really want to go back to being a peasant. Um, as fun as being a peasant student is and as critical as it was for my, my life, I think it's an important part of being a young adult is being a very poor student. Um, I think that's a, it's a great thing to do. But, um, yeah, so I applied for some really, really good scholarships and I got a fantastic scholarship that forced me to live and study in Bologna, in Hamburg and in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. So I did my PhD over there. Not, and a, not a bad scholarship. <laughs> incredible. It, it was, yeah, it was just incredible. Barely a drop in my salary either. And we got to move around and we had amazing professors, of course. It was a really small cohort. It was just 15 of us. And we attended, yeah, all of these seminars and sessions and winter schools and summer schools together. And we had to present our research every three months as well. So it was really, it was quite well set up to make sure that we all finished on time. So, so that was, that was kind of fine. Um, in theory, in practice, my, my topic was a really exciting topic, which was on how microfinance and the regulation of microfinance 
can actually support sustainable development across the world forever, right? So it's like a kind of, it was the most important question I could think of at the time that hadn't been answered. I can think of more important questions these days, but that's fine. Um, and so it was a great topic and that's kind of one of the reasons why they selected me for the, the project, I think. But then when I joined, they said, oh yeah, well, we don't actually have anyone to supervise you, but we do have uh, this fellow over here and he's doing mortgage refinances. So you could, um, you could just change your top. I mean, either you're going to do your PhD without a supervisor or you can do your PhD in mortgage refinance. And so I was like, oh my gosh, well, what do you choose? Gosh. So, so I went with, okay, I need supervision. I mean, I've done my honors, but I'm, you know, I do need supervision. I really value supervision. So I went with the, the mortgage refinance. And of course, after one year of suffering through that literature, oh my gosh, this must be the most boring topic in the world. Then, um, luckily I got, uh, the director of my program offered that I could change back to my original project and he would supervise me. And even though he wasn't an expert in microfinance, but my scholarship wouldn't extend. So I'd only have two years to do my PhD instead of three. And I was like, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a challenge. (laughs) Here's a challenge. Please get me back on my project, the one I actually want to do. And in the end, I finished it early because I was, when you're able to, when you have supervision to the sides and behind you and no one's stopping you, you can really run forward, especially if you're doing a project you want to do, which I, which I did. And I, yeah, I got to do field work in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. It was fantastic. Regulation of microfinance sounds a lot more interesting than uh, refinancing of mortgages. Oh, worlds apart. Just worlds apart, indeed. As you know, when you do something that matters, it's a completely different energy. And that's something that, that I sort of want to move to because one of the things that you know that we want to talk about is this idea of of long term change. And I think you said before we talked before that you um, you're very much focused on on wealth, and and something changed for you when you were doing your PhD. So maybe that was the big change for you. Can you can you sort of talk us through that? Absolutely. Yeah. Until that point, before I was doing my PhD, my goal was I just wanted to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. That was my goal. Quite arbitrary. And of course, now I realize how little vision I had back then. But at the same time, it was, it was a huge focus. So it was all about investments, uh, career, you know, focusing on, on everything very tangibly. And then, then I heard this story which is a very sweet story. While I was in Sri Lanka, which you have to go through Sri Lanka pretty much if you want to go from India to Pakistan. So it was during my PhD. I went to Sri Lanka like three times because there's no flights. It's just a complicated scenario. Anyway, (laughs) the story is so there was a a tourist wandering along the beach in Sri Lanka and they come across uh, a fisherman lying in his boat in the sun just just enjoying the afternoon. And the tourists, they start chatting and the tourist says, what are you doing here? right now. And he says, oh, well, this is my boat. And I went out this morning and went fishing and, and I sold some of the fish and gave some of the fish to my family for, for dinner. And so now I'm just relaxing. And the tourist says, but that's insane. I mean, this is your boat. You could take the boat out also in the afternoon. And the fisherman's like, oh yeah, cool. And then what? Well, then you get more fish and you can sell double the amount of fish at the market. And the fisherman's like, oh, double the amount. Oh, that sounds great. And then what? 
well, once you've, you can put all the money aside and eventually you could buy a second boat. If you keep doing that, what, fishing morning and afternoon, buy a second boat, put another person on and they can fish in the morning and the afternoon too. And he said, wow, okay. And then what? Well, eventually you can keep up this system, keep buying more boats. You can have a fleet. You can have 20 boats out there in the sea fishing. You'll have, you'll get all this income. And the fisherman's like, that's fantastic. Wow. And then what? And the, the tourist says, well, well, then you can sell it. You'll have a business to sell. And the fisherman says, wow. And then what? Well, then you can retire. And he says, great. And then what will I do? And the tourist says, then you can lie on the beach in the sun. <laughs> and of course, the fisherman's like, oh, <laughs> he's, he already, he's I, already I am, I am currently lying on the beach in the sun in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. to, to me, yeah. this story, it's not about, it's a bit of a realization. Mm, mm -hmm. And it's not about working less at all. It's about working in a way that really fits with you on a daily basis. I also had some, um, you know, experiences where you kind of almost die, which is a really good thing, I think, um, for me anyway, not for everyone, but for me, it's a really good thing because it puts everything in perspective and it helps you to understand that, oh, yes, yeah, so yesterday could have been the last okay, was yesterday the best? Because that's the goal, right? So the, the sh it moves from a shift of, okay, let's accumulate something over here that's kind of arbitrary, like money in a bank account or in a portfolio or whatever, to something that is a lifestyle focus. So it's a, how can this day be the best day? So how can I be the fisherman in a way? Not necessarily meaning lying on the beach in the sun, but what is my lying on the beach in the sun? What is that for me? And what does that work look like as well? So if I was out fishing, what's a really valuable thing I could be doing for my community that's a, the fishing work as well? So piecing it all together so that it's a daily focus rather than an arbitrary long-term goal focus, if that makes sense. So have you found that today, do you think? I think I have. Yeah, absolutely. It took me 10 years, but I got there as it should take 10 years. So, and a big part of it is figuring out what what really um, works for you, which is the hard bit as well, because I had to realize just how physical I am. So I should have known because of how active I was at high school, but I'm kind of like a Kelpie. I don't know if you've met one of those dogs, but they like just, they don't really like chilling out. Leaping all over the place. <laughs> Leaping all over the place. And they have really happy to work. Most of them are. Tell them to get back in the back of the ute and they're like, yes, work time. <laughs> so you need both. Exactly. And so I've incorporated into my life the physicality of, well, I, I own property. So the physicality of uh, building and learning new skills with building things. So I've been getting some, you know, rough cut hardwood and building cabins and, and decks and things like that, which is really important for me in a, in a physical sense in terms of my Kelpie nature, um, but also in terms of giving me a good opportunity, a good space in which I can fail, which is also really important and not very easy to do in a professional sense. So, yeah, it gives a great space for that as well as the surfing and, you know, connection to nature and connection to the community with the volunteering I do. So it's a, it, that's a really nice balance at the moment. And, yeah, there's, there's still room for improvement, but I think I've, yeah, I've, I've kind of, spent the last 10 years honing that, that daily existence, if that makes sense. So one of the things we like to talk about is this idea of, of, of being different 
from the crowd. And I think you're already sort of painting the picture of having a very, very different approach to the average person. Um, your focus is not so monetary. It's not so, so, so tangible. Like, although you, you are building that, the property, I guess, to keep yourself active, but, but how would you sort of describe yourself, um, as, as unique and as different? I think I'm really different because I focus on managing my energy rather than kind of the long-term outcome. So you know what it's like, you know, when you have to do your taxes, for example, and you're like, oh, wow, suddenly I've lost all my energy. (laughs) You're kind of like, I literally can't do my taxes without beer. Like I just, I need that some kind of positive, you know, association. So I what I do is I make sure that I don't do things where I need some kind, something else to be able to actually reinforce that you can go forward with this. So I always do things then that I really want to do. So I studied, when I studied financial planning, it was because I wanted to learn how to manage my own money. I just wanted to learn that. I didn't know at the start that there were jobs in financial planning. And even if there were jobs, I, there's no way I would have thought I was smart enough to do them. So it's, I just wanted the knowledge. Just tell me this stuff. Tell me the knowledge. And similarly with the things that I've studied in my, in my research degrees, it's all been about, okay, how, what do I want the answers to? Because if I want the answers to it, I know that my energy is going to be a hundred percent. So I know I can go down that path. Similarly, with the research projects I do now, with my teaching, the way that I teach, I do it in a way that manages my energy, which means that I'm able to give 100%, able to be fully engaged with my students and very entertaining, which they they really like that, um, which is really, really important to structure it in a way that supports my energy rather than some arbitrary outcome, because then I know that, yeah, I can I can do it with with full commitment, full enthusiasm, and the outcome then is guaranteed. That's the weird thing. So if I if I knew, okay, the best outcome I could get would be studying IT right now. I should go and study IT. Yeah, but I don't like IT. And, you know, it might be the best outcome, kind of, but it's not going to work because I'm not going to be able to study it with full commitment. I'm not going to be able to work in that field with full commitment. So in that way, I'm kind of working against my own energy levels. So by doing just what I want to do, if that makes sense, like it sounds very, um, <laughs> almost like a very selfish kind of thing to say. I just want, I just do what I want to do, but it's not a, a random minute by minute thing. You know, I choose, okay, I want to study this. I want to work in this field. I want to research this topic. And then I'm able to commit to it and give it all my energy. But by being that, let's say, protective rather than selfish of, of yourself, you can give more to others. And I think you have some, some long-term goals, which are very much about, about helping others. So maybe we just sort of finish on that note with what you, what you want to achieve in the, in the long term. Absolutely. So I've refined my goals. As you remember, back, at, back when my 20s, it was to have a million dollars by age 30. And now, of course, we realize that that's a very lame goal. <laughs> And a very small goal in terms of what you can achieve by the time you're 30 and what you can achieve in your life in general. So now I've refined my goals. So I have two key goals. One is to donate a million dollars to charity. And the other is to help a million people. 
So um, I have a long way to go on those goals. I think I'm up to around 52,000 towards charity when I add it up. Um, so I have a huge way to go, which is fantastic, which means it's the kind of goal that I can actually commit to with my energy. And similarly with, with helping uh, people. So I do that in, in lots of different ways, but that also includes uh, mentoring and that kind of thing to, as well as all the other things that I do every day um, to really make a positive impact on individuals' lives as well as on, in the monetary sense. And the monetary sense has changed from helping me in my life because I have enough. It's insane how much, you know, I have. It's really mental in comparison to the rest of the world. So changing the perspective from that to, to being more on the, the, the global mindset and, and helping more people in the world. The first one, the, the, the million dollars might be a, a, a to, to charities, probably what would be called a smart goal where it's, where it's very, very measurable. The, the million people was, is perhaps harder to measure. Do you do you have a metric or do you have a, a, a something you're tracking? Um, I am tracking the number of uh, students that I've taught and the number of um, people that I've mentored, of course, and also the number of clients that I've had in terms of both consulting and advice and those kind of things. The the thing is, though, it's, it does need some calculation refinement because especially if we think about students, um, some students might take my course and never realize I was even the teacher. There's a good 10% of students who somehow managed to pass the course without engaging in any of the materials. It's, it's actually quite classic, um, but that's the system we use in Australia. So it does need some refinement in terms of the calculations, but um, yeah, I'm working on the metrics as we speak. Well, hopefully, um, you know, it's been a fascinating episode and hopefully a million people will listen to, to what you've shared with me this afternoon and we'll, we'll get to that goal a lot more quickly. Fantastic. Catherine, thank, thanks so much for, for sharing your, your life journey with us. We, we appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.